When we look out at the universe, one of the wonderful things we get is a snapshot in time right now of how things are at this very moment. Light from all the different objects we can observe is arriving at our eyes, and as long as we subtract out the amount of time the light has traveled across the universe, we can know exactly how far out we're looking and what we're seeing at this moment in time. But one of the things that information doesn't give us is how these objects will evolve over time. Sure, we have techniques we can use that we can measure the velocities of different objects, but that only tells us how it's going to evolve the next moment into the future. If we want to get a better idea of how things are going to evolve over time, we need to look not only at what and where are the objects right now and how are they moving, but how that motion is changing over time. We need to ask about how these objects, stars, galaxies, objects within galaxies, even objects in the interstellar intergalactic medium, are changing over time. And how do we do that? And where are we today at figuring out how the universe is evolving? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Astronomy has come a long way since the early days where all we did was look through a telescope, record what we observed, and then try to make sense of it. We're now using much more advanced techniques, taking data not only at a snapshot in time, but over long periods of time. This has led to an exciting new field of astronomy that we have yet to find a good name for, but we've been calling it time domain astronomy. And what this basically means is instead of looking at just a snapshot, we're going to start seeing how do objects evolve over time and what techniques can we use to teach us about how they're moving, how they're accelerating, and what their long-term fates are going to be. And here to help us understand this better, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Sukanya Chakrabarty, who is a professor at RIT and has has worked in both theory and observation on a whole slew of different problems, including learning how galaxies and even our own Milky Way is accelerating. Sukanya, I'm so pleased to have you here and welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ethan. All right. It's my pleasure to have you. I'd love to ask you, you know, when we're talking about this, what what do we learn extra by even investigating how objects are accelerating in the universe over what we learn from just saying, well, here's where they are and here's how they're moving? Right. And that's a great question. So as, as you um, pointed out in the beginning, um, what we have done, <clears throat> what astronomers have done for more than a century uh, in is that we've estimated accelerations using observations of the speeds and positions of stars. So this is generally referred to as kinematic methods. When you um, use kinematic methods, you're assuming that the galaxy is in equilibrium. That is, that the potential, the gravitational potential of the galaxy is doesn't depend on time. 
But in reality, we, we now know there are many lines of evidence, many independent lines of evidence uh, that show very clearly, I think, that the Milky Way is, is out of equilibrium. And this has come into uh, particularly sharp focus with, with Gaia data, but we have in fact known about this for a long time. I, I can give you a few examples. Um, there is the now quite famous discovery of this um, phase-based spiral structure in, in Gaia data that was investigated by Antoja et al. Um, a few years ago. Uh, even before that, with SDSS data, we saw asymmetries in the north-south uh, north star counts, um, which suggests that the galaxy is wobbling, that there are vertical waves um, due to an interaction with a dwarf galaxy. Um, and even earlier um, from analysis of uh, uh, the disturbances in the outer gas disk of the Milky Way, um, we had uh, suggested that these disturbances could be uh, brought about due to an interaction with an external perturber such as uh, a dwarf galaxy. So, so it's really, you know, uh, the main advantage of actually measuring accelerations is that we're not making the assumption that the galaxy is in equilibrium. So I think we can get a much more realistic picture of the mass distribution. And it's the accelerations that give you a direct window, right, into the mass distribution, which includes the stars and, and the dark matter. Now, this is, this is kind of interesting to me because the picture you're painting is that uh, astronomers had made this approximation that we didn't really have a good motivation to assume this is a good approximation, right? We said, okay, look, the Milky Way is a big, massive galaxy in our local group. And as far as big, massive galaxies go, there's only one other, and it's Andromeda, and Andromeda is two and a half million light years away. And sure, there are a bunch of other things around in the local group, right? We have a bunch of dwarf galaxies, a bunch of smaller galaxies, maybe something like five dozen of them uh, also within our local group. But if we're so big and so massive and the only other big massive one is far away, uh, wouldn't you think like the Milky Way is mostly in equilibrium? I like what you said about, well, look, you know, a lot of these galaxies are, you know, also significantly massive if you were to look, for example, just within a couple hundred thousand light years of our Milky Way, right? So very close on our outskirts, we have the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is the fourth most massive galaxy in the local group behind Andromeda, Us, and Triangulum. You have the Small Magellanic Cloud. You have uh, tidal streams of... I believe it's a Sagittarius dwarf galaxy that has been just, I don't have a better word, wrecked by the Milky Way. It's sort of been turned into this giant stream that circles the galaxy in a polar direction. So we know these gravitational interactions could be important because a gravitational force is dependent on two things, the mass of the thing, which is small, but also how close it is to you. So if you have these galaxies that are very close by, even if they're low in mass, they could be pushing various things out of equilibrium, where equilibrium is what happens, yeah, the galaxy, we just leave it alone for a few billion years and we don't tug on it. And then, yeah, kinetic and potential energy will balance and it'll uh, do, I guess, what we call virialize. Um, but our galaxy isn't doing that. And I think that's a major point that you're getting at. And um, one of the ways that we've learned 
that the galaxy is in an equilibrium is through this later Gaia data, which is very recent. Um, I don't know if you've specifically worked on that, but I feel like that's that's the most robust evidence that people point to these days for why we're not in equilibrium and how we not only know, but how we can sort of quantify that we are in an equilibrium. Could you tell us a little bit about what we've learned from looking at the universe, at the galaxy with, uh, with this latest satellite? Yeah. And, you know, right. And as you said, Ethan, you know, um, we, there, we have now a growing census of dwarf galaxies, um, for some time now, uh, that indicate that many of these dwarf galaxies have, have interacted, um, with the Milky Way, um, leading to tidal streams. One of the most prominent is, is that of the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy as it got too close to our galaxy and was cannibalized in, in the process. Um, now with with Gaia, there, there are a few uh, examples uh, that are particularly striking when um, you look at uh, the vertical distribution of velocities um, as a function of vertical height. Uh, with Gaia, you see a spiral structure, which is not expected in, in, you know, in a purely isolated context. So this is this space-based um, spiral structure that has been uh, extensively uh, discussed in the galactic dynamics community and has been interpreted as having arisen due to an interaction with a dwarf galaxy. So if I if I were to ask you a little bit more detail about that, especially for our listeners, um, what I understand about this is the classic theory of how a spiral galaxy should look. And we have tremendous trouble, by the way, observing our own galaxy because we're stuck within it. We can't just look at it like we can look at a face on galaxy and see what it's doing. Um, but aren't the spiral arms, aren't they supposed to like say, show certain patterns that align with the idea of a density wave propagating through the disk of the galaxy and that's where stars form? And then when you actually look at it, you know, phase space is saying like, okay, well, instead of looking at things like what's its position versus, you know, its motion, we're instead going to look at something like velocity space where you're plotting, uh, where you're plotting various properties that, that aren't necessarily going to align with your physical intuition. Um, but what they're seeing is that you have sort of different a different pattern than what you would expect if it was just this pure, oh, you know, you have a spiral galaxy and it rotates and you get these density waves where things bunch up and that's where you form new stars. And it looks like our galaxy isn't quite doing that. It looks like there are these discontinuities. And the last graph I saw seemed to show like four separate uh, I guess, curves in phase space where it looks like that there are, there are these discontinuities in there. And that, that I, I take it is what tells us, hey, uh, at the very least, the naive picture doesn't work. And it's probably because we're not in equilibrium like the naive picture assumes. Yeah, and you know, the, this is, I should say, this is something that has been evolving um, for some time, certainly, as we're discovering more and more dwarf galaxies, and as we're able to class, you know, actually calculate their orbits. That's yet another um, significant advance um, with Gaia, we, we can measure the proper motions and therefore calculate 
the orbits of these dwarf galaxies and see, you know, make computer simulations that allow us to visualize how they're going to interact uh, with the Milky Way. That that's um, that's been tremendously helpful in in understanding the uh, the picture that you see of the galaxy, uh, along with the causal mechanism, given the measured proper motions of these of these dwarf galaxies. And you also um, talked about density waves, which are which you see in, in the plane of, of the disk um, of, of the galaxy. And uh, that's something I worked on a very long time ago. Um, <laughs> and uh, in fact, that's actually how I, I how I started thinking about this, um, this area of research overall. When you look at the uh, gas disk um, of our galaxy, well outside the solar circle, uh, you see pretty large perturbations. Uh, you see splotchy structures in the neutral hydrogen, um, spiral structures, large perturbations that are, that are very difficult to explain in an isolated context. And you certainly don't expect this in the theory of uh, density wave theory, uh, far, so far beyond um, the solar circle. Uh, so this is work that I did as a postdoc. Um, and at that time, we, when I was a postdoc at Berkeley, we had to invoke a new perturber, a yet unknown perturber, uh, a dwarf galaxy that interacted with the Milky Way to produce those large disturbances on the outskirts of our galaxy. Now, let me ask you, did you feel a little bit like like Urbain Le Verrier when you were doing that, where you're like, okay, like I'm watching the orbit and Uranus and it, it's going too fast and now it's going the right speed, but now it's going too slow. And oh boy, that would work if there were an extra massive planet outside of its orbit that's tugging on it. I wonder if we go and look over there, what will, oh, there it is. There's Neptune. All right, that's good. Did you feel a little bit like that making a prediction? And did you have worries that you were going to wind up feeling like the other guy, John Cooch Adams, who made these failed predictions of what this ought to be and where it ought to be? Was that like, was that a big leap of faith? Or you were like, well, I don't have tenure. It's not a big deal. I can, I can go ahead and make this prediction. Yeah, I, um, I think at some level, yeah, it was a risky prediction. Um, but, you know, we had part of the reason why we were driven to make this prediction was that, you know, I had looked, um, as you said, there are a number of dwarf galaxies that orbit the Milky Way. And, and so you can, given their masses and their distance of close approach, their pericenter, you can identify the main tidal players of the Milky Way, right? You can order them and rank them in terms of their relative importance in disturbing our galaxy. Yeah, I think I think that's that itself is an excellent point because when you want to make a tidal force on a galaxy, that's a force that's going to, you know, pull harder on the closer part than on the further part, so it'll cause this stretching and compressing. Uh, tidal forces are a little different than gravitational forces because they do depend on the mass, but instead of being a 1 over r squared force, it's a 1 over r cubed force. So when something gets twice as close to the Milky Way or just half the distance, the tidal forces go up by a factor of eight. And that's why something like, for example, the moon can have three times the tidal forces on Earth than the sun can, even though the moon is like 
like something like 10 or 100 million times less massive than the sun. It's that super close distance means the tidal forces spike when you get really close. And like you said, we have multiple, multiple massive dwarf galaxies around us. And if the math doesn't add up and there has to be an extra one, you should be pretty confident about saying, you know, there's got to be a component we're not seeing to cause these effects. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. So I'd gone through the census of known dwarf galaxies at the time, looked at the tidal force they would exert. And um, the most interesting one in this respect was the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy, um, which is, aside from this predicted one, is the one that gets closest to the Milky Way, but, but it's on a relatively polar orbit, which means that you don't get as much bang for your buck for the same mass of satellite in the planar disturbances which is what we were analyzing, as if you were on a coplanar orbit around, around the Milky Way. Yeah, because with tidal forces, um, for example, if you take a look at, the, at planet Earth, um, the moon pulls on Earth and Earth is going to bulge or get that, that bulge in both directions on it. Um, dependent on the line of sight of the moon, we do get a little compression in the perpendicular direction, but that's small compared to the stretching that we get. Um, and the same thing is true for any tides. But it seems like if you're on a polar orbit, you're going to have these moments where you sort of plunge through the plane of the galaxy. And when that plunge occurs, um, then all of a sudden now you are lined up with it. Um, and so it seems like these tidal forces are going to become more or less important over time, and they'll have imprints on the galaxy from where they did, you know, exert these bigger forces. Right. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and one interesting difference between the stars and the gas is that the gas has short-term memory, uh, which is to say that disturbances in the gas disk dissipate on the order of a dynamical time. So if you see a disturbance today, it means because the gas is collisional um, in contrast to the stars, which are essentially collisionless, uh, which means that you can evolve them in a smooth gravitational potential. Um, and you don't have to worry about modeling the collisions between, between stars. Uh, so, um, so one important difference between looking at disturbances in the gas and disturbances in the stars is that disturbances in the gas don't last for a very long time. Disturbances in the stars last for a very long time, <laughs> um, for many crossing times. And so um, that is another reason why the Sag Dwarf orbit wasn't able to explain uh, the structures, the, the large perturbations that we see in the outer gas disk of the Milky Way. That's that's pretty interesting. And I, I think about this as the difference between colliding stars and colliding gas as like if two people stood maybe five or 10 feet apart. And this is this is a pre pandemic uh, visualization where where no one's wearing masks. Right. And if both of those people uh, fill their mouth full of watermelon seeds and they spit watermelon seeds at each other, that's like the stars, right? There rarely are you going to have a midair collision between two watermelon seeds, even though watermelons are pretty big and five or 10 feet isn't that big a separation. But if the two people, instead of blowing watermelon seeds at each other, are blowing um, smoke 
like they each take a drag on a cigarette and they blow smoke at each other. As soon as those smoke particles start to collide, the air is very turbulent and they do interact. And so the gas will interact, it will have these frictional forces, it will dissipate, and so those imprints won't be there for very long. But any effects that lead to, for example, that gas forming stars or that lead to stars themselves getting perturbed, that will be a long-term effect. Right, right. So when we, when we go and we look at what the data tells us, you say, okay, look, we've got these Magellanic clouds, we've got the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy. None of this, even when we add it all up, none of this is enough to account for what we're seeing. Um, what does that what did that go and tell us then should be going on what were sort of like what was the leading possibility that that you and maybe others were sort of concluding like something else has to be at play to explain what we're seeing yeah so you know at that point once once i looked at the census of dwarf galaxies and concluded it wasn't possible um to account for these very large um uh, disturbances in the outer gas disk of our galaxy by the known dwarf galaxies. I did a grid of computer simulations where I varied the how massive these dwarf galaxies were that were perturbing our galaxy and how close they got, as well as um, uh, other details of, of their orbits and, uh, and, and how we uh, simulate the Milky Way itself. Um, and I was led to a pretty surprising conclusion, which is that you need a pretty massive uh, galaxy, about one one hundredth the mass of our of our own galaxy. Uh, that's pretty massive for a dwarf galaxy. Yeah, I mean that would that would put it on par with like Triangulum, right? That would put it on par with like the number three galaxy in the local group, or, or, or Sag. And um, at some point, even the LMC had had masses uh, in that range. Now the LMC is, is considered to be somewhat more massive than that. Um, okay. And okay. Uh, uh, so, so, so that was, and by comparing the disturbances that are brought about by the you know, by these simulations to the actual data, um, we were able to determine, you know, the the properties of that dwarf galaxy that you would need to uh, produce the. Um, observed structures that we saw. And, and you alluded to Leverrier's uh, discovery of Neptune. So it is, it, it, it was sort of, I guess, in a similar spirit to that, um, by looking at the wobbles um, of the orbit of Uranus, uh, Leverrier was able to predict um, the azimuth of Neptune to within a degree. And uh, as it turned out, uh, he was right. Um, and uh, so this is the Many there are quite a few parameters of of the prediction that are that are quite similar to a recently discovered dwarf galaxy. In fact, that was discovered from Gaia data called Antlia two. Um, so I looked at this a, a couple of years ago. Uh, Antlia two is is uh, about as big as the LMC. So as a, as far as a dwarf galaxy goes, it's actually pretty big, um, but it's extremely faint. It's about four thousand times fainter than uh, the LMC. And it's pretty close to the plane of the galaxy as well. Um, it's currently at a distance, radial distance of 130 kpc, which is um, close to our prediction um, from about a decade ago. And that, that I think is really exciting. Like I, I would love to give our listeners sort of a, 
perspective on the timeline of this because you you did this work about saying like okay we're accounting for the galaxies we see um we know from what we're observing in the milky way that these galaxies don't do the job on their own so we're going to make a prediction and just like people who make predictions of a new planet in our solar system uh have called that planet x you made this prediction that galaxy x should exist and one of the predictions i remember about galaxy x is that well in order to line up with this it should be somewhere in what i always think of as the zone of avoidance and I think of it as like, this is the plane of the Milky Way galaxy, and we call it the zone of avoidance. Like the original reason we called it the zone of avoidance is because for some mythical reason, galaxies seem to avoid existing in this region of gas and dust and opaque Milky Way, where the Milky Way basically blocks the light from everything behind it. And it wasn't until we sort of invented, I say we, it wasn't until Paolo Maffei invented infrared astronomy in like the 60s that we were able to look through the plane of the galaxy and start of seeing, oh, there are galaxies there. They don't avoid the plane of the galaxy. It's just we should avoid trying to see them with anything that can't see through the dust. Um, and so you made this prediction and this is going to be difficult because now you're not only talking about something in the plane of the galaxy you're talking about something well beyond the galaxy that's its own thing that you have to see through the entirety of the milky way to go and identify um and so that was a prediction 10 years ago it was really only hit my radar about two years ago that this Antlia 2 was not only discovered, but was like identified with the necessary parameters for Galaxy X. So, you know, that's that's to give perspective of like, this is a long time coming, but also, you know, only eight years from when we predicted this should occur to when we identified, oh, and there's the culprit. That's pretty good for a scientific detective story. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I was really excited when I saw the um, uh, discovery paper for Anthea 2. And in fact, I, I hadn't looked at AstroPH that day. One of my collaborators had looked at on the online archives where the Australian papers are posted. And um, she emailed me and said, you, you got to look at this. And uh, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's how I came back. Um, after almost a decade to um, work again on this problem. And it, it looks like quite a few uh, of our predictions do line up quite closely um, with Atlia 2's uh, observable properties. Now, this is this is one of the great examples, I think, of it's just so illustrative in astronomy how this interplay of theory and observation feeds back on both sides to help us make discoveries. Initially, uh, it was the observations of what's happening in the Milky Way where we realized that, okay, if I take a look at what do I see happening in the Milky Way and I compare it with the full suite of things we've observed, I know assuming that my theory is correct and I know how gravity works and I know how stars and gas dynamics work, um, what I see isn't lining up. So theoretically, I have this prediction that there should be something new. And now 
that tells me, well, if I want to go and look to test this prediction, I need to make some observational advances in order to be able to go out and test this and look beyond our current limits that haven't identified what we predict ought to be there. And then the observations catch up. They make those observations. Hey, look, there's a new thing. Could that be responsible for it? And then we go and plug that back into the theory. And that's where I think things got exciting because when you plug that back into the theory, well, I should let you tell us what did you find? <laughs> right. So. Um, so the, the parameters that do line up quite closely um, is the radial distance that we, we predicted about a decade ago. Um, when we um, first made that prediction, we said that, you know, it's going to have a pericenter distance of 10 kpc. And today, at present day, we should expect to find the satellite at 130 kpc. So that, that lines up very, very closely, um, given the Gaia observations now. And um the metallicity um the metal content of, of this dwarf galaxy that was reported in the uh, um, discovery paper can also be used to estimate a total mass um which is close to what you need to explain these uh, disturbances in the outer gas disk of our galaxy and also you know antlia 2 is 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 uh clearly um given the uh, proper motions we can see that it is on a coplanar orbit so that lines up as well uh, now, um, the final thing that I think needs to be checked, and it's some more work is, is needed on this, is uh, knowing exactly what the pericenters are, because we don't know quite that from, from the previous guy measurements. Um, and so what we have is a range of pericenters, because we don't know the orbits exactly. But it's certainly the, the range that we have is, is such that um, a low pericenter is, is allowed. I think this is really interesting because what you're basically saying is, look, this thing, with respect to the Milky Way, this, this satellite galaxy is on a very elliptical, very eccentric ellipse of an orbit with the Milky Way, where it actually, you know, comes in basically to the disk of the Milky Way. It, like, when it comes through, it comes into the disk, and now we see it, it's gone back out. And, you know, you gave things in KPC, which is great for our listeners who don't do that automatically. Uh, this thing is about 400,000 light years away from us right now, but it got as close as about the distance of the sun from the center of the Milky Way. So it came in very close to the Milky Way. Um, one of the things I found interesting about Antlia 2 when I when I went to learn about it is that it is pretty massive. Like it would be definitely in the top 10 of massive galaxies in the local group. Right. But it isn't particularly bright. It doesn't have as many, um, it doesn't have the luminosity of, say, the Large Magellanic Cloud, even though it might have a comparable mass. Um, is this a problem or is this perfectly in line with something that say has come through at a pretty good clip through the Milky Way had its gas sort of stripped out while its stars went right through sort of like you know imagining it's a mix of smoke and watermelon seeds that the smoke gets sort of hung up in the Milky Way but the watermelon seeds go right back out. 
Yeah, and that's a great question. So when we first did, um, uh, when I first did the computer simulations to make this prediction about a decade ago, at that time, it was purely a dynamical calculation. And I, I didn't think so much about, you know, how many stars are in this dwarf galaxy. I just thought about how massive it is, how close it gets. That is just the dynamics. Um, but, and, you know, equally important question to ask is, you know, how, given that we now have an observable galaxy, do uh, the um, uh, other properties like how the stars are distributed, uh, et cetera, um, do they line up as well? Um, so that wasn't part of the original prediction, but we can make some, you know, reasonable um, uh, uh, guesses along these lines. And we did that um, in a follow-up paper um, uh, about a year ago, um, which this is work that was led um, by Omid uh, Samaye, who is a, a postdoc at UT Austin. And I was also involved in this. And in fact, yes, uh, the result that we found is that these close um, approaches, uh, if Antlia 2 is on this kind of close approach, it would explain um, this very diffuse, uh, the very diffuse size of Amphilia 2. So it's, it's, it's pretty big. It's about 3 kpc. The half-light radius is about 3 kpc comparable to, comparable to the LMC. So it's as big as the LMC, but 4,000 times fainter than that. Um, and so the more detailed calculations that, that Omid uh, did um, subsequently uh, uh, about a year ago uh, in fact, do do explain um, those properties as well. Yeah, and I think it's important to be fair to the LMC too. The LMC is pretty unusually bright for its mass because it is pretty gas rich and is actively not just forming stars. The LMC has the largest active star forming region in the entire local group all inside of it. So, um, you know, when you say it's really, really faint compared to the LMC, like you have to be fair and remember the LMC is really unusually bright for its size. Not like, oh, it creates a problem for cosmology or anything, but this is, this is basically the brightest the LMC has ever been or will ever be over the 14 billion year history of the universe. So let me ask you now, um, when we take this information, we put it together. Um, how well do things line up now when we say, okay, we're going to take all of the galaxies that we know of into account, including Antlia 2, um, and we see, okay, here are the properties of the Milky Way. It's still not in equilibrium, but based on where all these galaxies are and how we think they're moving, um, is there still something that's necessarily missing from our picture? Or is this a solid enough picture now that we say, you know, at least as far as the Milky Way goes, do we think we have identified all of the major players and perturbers to the galaxy? Yeah, so certainly I would say um, if Anthea 2 is on a loop, low pericenter orbit um, of order uh, 10 kpc, which is within the range of... Uh, pericenters that that it, that that is allowed by the observations um, by Gaia. 
uh, it would explain the disturbances in the outer gas disk of the Milky Way. That, that's quite clear. And that was one of the main um, take home messages in, in our work uh, from um, a couple of years ago. Okay, well, that's that's great. Um, so I think it sounds like the next steps are going to be to try and pinpoint Antlia 2's basically how close does it get when it comes closest to the Milky Way, like how how close into the plane of our galaxy, how close towards the galactic center does it get? Does it really get comparably close to the sun galactic center distance? Um, and if it does, then you're basically like, hey, this this you know, I'll solve the puzzle, Pat. This is how we do it. Yes, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Um, so maybe then that leads to a new question of, um, you know, we have these, uh, we have to have some way to measure these accelerations really, really accurately. We have to have some way of measuring that. And I know that something you've worked on as, um, as a way of doing these precision measurements is pulsar timing. And I'm a little curious about how that works because, you know, I think of pulsars as, uh, you know, when you get lucky, you get a good pulsar, good pulsar, you get a millisecond pulsar that's like an almost perfect clock. Uh, you start watching when the pulses arrive and tick, 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 tick. You can sort of see, oh, these are super regular things. Um, but they are, because they're so regular, that makes them very sensitive to any changes to them. If, they, if there's any change in their velocity, uh, especially along the line of sight, uh, that's something that we can pick up over time. And so I'm sort of, uh, you know, curious, like, can we get precise enough measurements of these pulsars to, to sort of learn about how are the various regions in the galaxy where we have these pulsars, how are they accelerating? Um, or if that's maybe not even the right question. So what... Yeah, absolutely. Though. That's that's um, definitely the right question. Um, the way the way the way we approach this is that um, you know pulsars these pulsars live within the gravitational potential of the Milky Way, and as a result, they will experience an acceleration. Um, so, how can you express this? How can you think about this acceleration given the observable properties of, of the pulsars? Um, one thing that you you talked about is that these pulsars, of course, spin. So you can measure the time rate of, of the spin, the change of the spin period. What we looked at is the um, uh, we looked at pairs of pulsars, that is binary pulsars, and we looked at the time rate of change of the binary orbital period. Um, the reason we do this is that. Um, if you look at the time rate of change of the spin period, that also you can express uh, as an acceleration, um, but that depends on the magnetic field, which is not known very well. And so you would have to approach that statistically. In the case of, if you look at the time rate of change of the binary orbital period, um, there you can identify uh, the dependencies um, much more clearly and isolate and solve for uh, um, the galactic acceleration or the dependence on the galactic potential quite clearly.
One of the interesting things, and uh, for those of you who are avid Starts With a Bang podcast listeners, we had uh, Haley Wall on the podcast just a couple of months ago, um, and she was telling us about pulsar polarization and how some of the pulsars with very strong magnetic fields, uh, the light coming from them is actually partially polarized, uh, we believe due to the effect of vacuum by refringence, where you have this incredibly strong magnetic field that actually causes the light as it passes through it to become partially polarized. Um, do you have any binary pulsars where you can also measure the pulsar polarization. And would that be a way to say, oh, you know what, we can actually get some information about the magnetic field here, and maybe we can fold that in and remove that key uncertainty? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So we didn't um, follow uh, that angle um, when, we, when, we, when we worked on this. Um, this is something that we're starting to look into now, so I can't give you um, a complete answer. But there are, um, it, it looks like there are a few cases that where we might be able um, uh, to go about it this way. Uh, but in general, it's, it's difficult to measure the contribution um, of the magnetic field to the spin down. Um, that is, the magnetic breaking will cause the pulsars to spin down, but it's in general, it's difficult to quantify exactly what that is. All right. So that's maybe an area that if the, you know, science catches up to our, our big eye dreams, we might be able to fold that in. But right now, it sounds like there are basically three effects that can play a big role. One of them is going to be the magnetic fields of the pulsars in the binary system. One is going to be the relativistic effects of orbital decay from general relativity. And that one we can quantify. Um, but then there's this extra effect that you're sort of looking at of this, uh, well, what's the best way to conceive of it? Is it better to conceive of it as a galactic acceleration or from an external potential? Um, what What is it that's that's driving this extra effect that you're trying to understand? It, it, it's, you know, it is uh, due to the fact that the pulsars live in the gravitational potential of the Milky Way. And, and so you could imagine, for example, let's say that you, you didn't have any relativistic effects. Let's say that these, even though they're compact objects, they're on very far away orbits, so that the relativistic term isn't um, really very large. You can imagine um, uh, at that point, if, particularly for binary pulsars, if I, there's, there's an additional term, uh, which uh, is, is a detail that I'm going to ignore for the moment. At that point, then all you're worrying about is the fact that the pulsars live in the gravitational potential of the Milky Way, and therefore they, the, the time rate of change of the binary period will evolve as a function of time. Right. So, so you can basically choose. You, you can choose, right? You can choose the pulsar systems and say like, well, I only want binary pulsar systems where, where the two pulsars or the pulsar and the other compact object are separated by a certain distance. So I can, I can ignore gravitational wave effects or it's, it's just not important. Who cares if it's going to decay on a time scale of 10 to the 20 years? That's not really going to affect my observations. Yeah. So yeah, and you're you're alluding to a very important point, which is how we selected the pulsars. So we we selected millisecond pulsars, which spin several hundred times uh, per second, and these are in fact 
the best timed pulsars. These are the best clocks that we have available in, in the galaxy. Their um, timekeeping ability is comparable to that of atomic clocks. Uh, and we, um, so that's the first thing. And then secondly, we uh, looked at uh, millisecond pulsars that have, that have very good measurements on the time rate of change of the binary orbital period. Um, and finally, uh, the third thing was we excluded uh, pulsars that are in globular clusters, because in those cases, the potential of the globular cluster dominates over the potential of the galaxy. And we're interested in measuring the potential of the galaxy. So you have to throw away a lot of pulsars um, because a lot of pulsars are found in globular clusters. A lot of pulsars aren't millisecond pulsars. So uh, I think I think maybe we can go back to calling them good pulsars. You just you want the good pulsars because because you want to focus in on the effect that you're trying to measure, which is the gravitational potential of the galaxy at all these different locations. That's right. So after. Uh, this culling process, we were left with um, a grand total of 14 uh, pulsars that, that we analyzed. And these pulsars uh, cover a range in, in radius um, of about a kiloparsec or several thousand light years and, and a similar extent in, in vertical height. So um, we don't have a huge uh, coverage across the galaxy, and um, but that should change in the coming years. So this is data that, that we're using is, is been gathered from um, pulsar timing arrays, including um, Nanograv uh, in North America and others in, in Europe and Australia. And these uh, data releases are going to continue. So we will continue to get uh, more measurements of pulsars and more precise measurements. And so we should be able to survey a larger part of the galaxy, not just one kiloparsec in radius and vertical height, but potentially go out to several kiloparsec, um, which will give you, give us a, a much more of a lever arm um, on the galactic potential. Now, this is, this is really exciting to me because um, traditionally, like you said way back at the start of the podcast, we don't really directly measure the galactic potential, we sort of infer it. You infer it based on, you know, the position and velocity observations and assume that it's in equilibrium and it obeys the virial theorem, which, you know, as you've discussed over the last decade, especially, we've learned not only isn't that true, but we've quantified how that isn't true. Uh, and that sort of really highlights the need for these direct measurements. And as you're saying right now, uh, we can see this for where the pulsars are that we're finding. And that's, you know, these good pulsars tend to be pretty close. They tend to be pretty close by. But as we're improving our observations, as we're improving our techniques, our equipment, our um, basically all of it, as science advances, we hope to be able to detect these pulsars to the current level of precision out 10, 100 times, well, at least 10 times as far as we can do right now. And if we could do that, that would go from, you know, getting roughly pulsars within about 3,000 light years of us, which still are roughly in our local neighborhood, to 30,000 light years, where all of a sudden you're getting a huge chunk of the Milky Way covered, including the galactic center all the way out to basically the Milky Way's half-light radius. 
Prometheus, which is uh, which is a really big deal for saying, oh, you know, now we're mapping significant parts of the galactic potential, and this has implication for mapping out not only the profile of overall matter, but for disentangling what's due to the gas and dust and stars in the disk versus what's due to the halo of dark matter. Yes, exactly. And um, so, you know, in this initial work with with the uh, 14 pulsars that cover um, several thousand light years in, in radius and vertical height, we were able to constrain a few parameters that that a few fundamental parameters that describe our galaxy. Um, so there's something called the Oort limit, named after Jan Oort, uh, that is the average midplane density, the total density um, of, of matter in the Milky Way. So that is something that we were able to constrain to, to three sigma. Um, now, given the total density, you can subtract off the amount of visible matter, and then you're left with the local uh, dark matter density, which we also uh, gave a value for that um, in, in our work. Um, we, uh, we gave some numbers for the um, slope of the rotation curve. Um, the rotation curve is, is one of the means uh, that has, the observed rotation curves of galaxies is one of the means that has been used to infer the presence of dark matter. Um, but we had large uncertainties on, on, on the slope of the rotation curve. And that's not very surprising because the pulsars cover a, a range of 1 kbc and, and radius and vertical height. So you will get the more significant constraint in, in the smaller dimension that is the vertical dimension. But as you said, as we get more and more uh, measurements of pulsars at larger distances, we will be able to make this measurement of, of the slope of the rotation curve directly without using kinematic methods to estimate it. Um, and that will give us a very direct uh, uh, um, constraint on, on uh, the dark matter profile, uh, radial profile uh, in the Milky Way. And as we go to larger vertical heights, um, you know, the expectation is that as you go to larger vertical heights from the galactic midplane, dark matter will dominate over the stars. So at that point, you're really probing the dark matter potential. Um, so, so that's that's going to be really exciting. And in addition to looking at it in the sort of smooth, uh, at the moment, we, the, the, what we're able to, to probe is, is essentially the smooth component of the gravitational potential. But we also believe from uh, our models that dark matter could be in clumps. And so that's that's the second step. To that's speak. right if we can um, uh, learn about um, dark matter substructure with uh, pulsar timing, as well as uh, the other techniques that we've been developing uh, to measure uh, direct accelerations, which include um, extreme precision radial velocity observations as well. Right, and this this goes along with a lot of works being done in complementary fields. For example, uh, the works that uh, someone like Priya Natarajan has done, or that Anna Nirenberg has done, where you sort of look at uh, the lensing, the cluster lensing, as you look out towards a massive galaxy cluster and you see that it lenses something, uh, that you discover you don't just need these big halos of dark matter to describe what we see. You also need this clumpy dark matter 
substructure to explain the details of these lenses. Uh, you can maybe start asking questions about uh, the work of someone like Jeremy Balin, who focuses on, you know, uh, when you have a galaxy and a dark matter halo around it, you don't expect the halo to be a perfect sphere. You expect the halo to have an ellipsoidal shape where it has a long axis and a short axis. And moreover, you expect these halos to tumble with respect to the baryonic dark matter. You don't expect uh, there to be, you know, oh, all the halos are elongated in the direction of the disc and compressed in the direction of the plane. I remember learning, I believe it was Teresa Brainerd's work that she did maybe 20 years ago with her grad student, Candice. I'm blanking on her last name. Well, Teresa and Candice. Uh, they, they were looking for the effects of a dark matter halo that would be compressed in the direction of the plane, and they didn't find one. That they were like, on average, this is a null effect, it's not there. And I think that surprised a lot of people. So, you know, the Milky Way, because it's so close to us, because we're in it, there you know, when I think about dark matter in the Milky Way, I think about, oh, it's so difficult to measure the stars and to measure all these properties because we're stuck within it. But through pulsar timing and, and a few other effects, there are mechanisms we have to probe the structure and substructure of the Milky Way that are unique because all of these objects are so close to us. And I think this pulsar timing one has the potential to really uh, give us some direct close by observations that can, you know, shed a whole new type of light on the nature of dark matter and how it clumps astrophysically and how it's distributed within a galaxy. Yeah, exactly. And as you said, so um, one main line uh, of, um, uh, trying to understand dark matter substructure in external galaxies has been to use gravitational lensing uh, to look at uh, flux ratio anomalies to infer uh, dark matter substructure and different dark matter models um, like cold dark matter versus self-interacting dark matter uh, have particularly different um, distributions of substructure on the low mass end, which is why it can give you, you know, if you're able to say something about substructure, you might learn something even about the nature of dark matter. Um, one of the reasons that dark matter has been so puzzling is that we have lots of evidence for the existence of dark matter um, by studying the gravitational effect that it has, but we know very little um, about what it is. Um, so the substructure angle can help us to learn something about the nature of dark matter. Now with, with measuring accelerations, what we're looking at directly is, is, is you know, accelerations, not substructure, right? So, so we, we would be looking at the effect that the substructure has on the accelerations. And, um, and as a result, you know, we might see more um, than, for example, um, the, the initially, you know, when you're looking at substructure in the Milky Way, we, we'd expect it to see a lot um, within the cold dark matter paradigm. This was later revised uh, once we understood that the disk um, can, in fact, the disk of the Milky Way can deplete these uh, dark matter substructures. Um, but even when that happens, the imprints will still be there on the accelerations of the star. So we, we might nevertheless see it on the accelerations of the star. So I had uh, 
in before I worked on pulsar timing, when I was first thinking about this in the context of uh, measuring the accelerations with extreme precision radial velocity observations using these very uh, uh, um, high resolution um, spectrographs that have come online, uh, which allow you to measure uh, shifts in spectral lines on the order of 10 centimeter per second. Um, so uh, so the, the, that, that is what the galactic acceleration is. It's about uh, 10 centimeter per second over a decade baseline. So that's a very difficult measurement to make, right? But we, we do now have this, this additional technology with these high resolution spectrographs, which have been used also to, to hunt for planets. Um, and we made these um, uh, predictions for what you would expect to see for the acceleration uh, profile when you have interactions with dwarf galaxies. And they're very, very different um, than what you have in an isolated context. So I think we have a little bit of guidance for, for what we can expect. And we looked for it with the pulsar timing observations, but we, we just didn't have enough of a dynamic range uh, at the moment to see it. But I'm hopeful that we, we will be able to improve on this in the near future. You know, I just want to highlight for everyone how incredible the idea of measuring changes of 10 centimeters per second is for something like this, because we really only started like recognizing how necessary dark matter was in the 70s when we were finally technologically able to start measuring differential velocities in different parts of the galaxy at resolutions of like 10 kilometers per second. That when we can get down to like chunks of 10 kilometers per second, we can start seeing like, oh, this part of the galaxy is rotating at a different speed than these parts of the galaxy. And now you're talking about 10 centimeters per second. This is, this is an improvement in precision over about a 50-year baseline of a factor of 100,000. Um, and... and I just I just find that incredible. I also find incredible the amount we were able to constrain that you and your work was able to constrain like, you know, like okay, we're talking about the gal galactic accelerations in here using only 14 pulsars. So you've set up this picture of, look, let's dream that instead of 1 kpc, we can get out to 10 kpc, right? Instead of 3,000 light years, we're looking at 30,000 light years in all directions. Um, and then we can get down to 10 centimeters per second over a decadal time scale. Um, and we can start to measure these local galactic accelerations. We can learn things about dark matter substructure, the effect and shape and orientation of the halo. Um, let me ask you, if these were the things you'd want to know, how many, assuming they're randomly distributed over the sky, uh, which may be not the best assumption because they're going to be clustered in the galactic plane probably, um, but let's say pulsars are just all over the place, how many of these pulsars, how many good pulsars would you need to find in order to get the statistics necessary to sort of give you this ability to sort of make strong statements about what is the substructure profile in the Milky Way? What does the halo look like? What's its orientation? How is its density changing over space? Yeah, so I, I think one, one key thing that we have to do is to go out further in distance. And we, um, what we found is that if we'd been able to go out even one KPC in distance from where what we were able to do in this initial study, 
we might optimistically have been able to directly measure um, the acceleration profile that is due to uh, what's produced by Antlia 2 and the Sagittarius dwarf, um, which leads to an asymmetry in the vertical acceleration profile. If you have an equilibrium, if you have a, a galaxy that's in equilibrium that is not being perturbed by dwarf galaxies, the vertical acceleration profile is very symmetric above and below the galactic midplane. Um, if you have a galaxy that is being perturbed by satellites, and let's say in a simple picture, we just think about one satellite at the moment, um, you can show, and we, we showed this in an earlier paper, that the, uh, the vertical acceleration profile is distinctly asymmetric. It's very different above and below the uh, galactic midplane. Um, and we showed this for simulations of the Milky Way interacting with Antlia 2 and with the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy. So that's a signature um, of the interaction in the acceleration profile itself. That's really interesting. You're, you're basically saying, look, our galaxy is wearing a hat but has no shoes. So I want to, uh, I should be able to measure this asymmetry in, you know, on the side where the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy is now, I should see a different signature than on the opposite side where there isn't the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. Yep, yep, exactly. And we were very close. I mean, this is one of the things that motivated me uh, to do the pulsar timing study because, you know, as we've been discussing, a lot of my prior work has been in, in doing computer simulations of the Milky Way interacting with dwarf galaxies. And, uh, and I've done probably thousands and thousands of these simulations. And the one constant, the one constant in these simulations is that the galaxy is changing, right? So, um, so I was very motivated to, to see if we could look for the effects of these interactions or dark matter substructure in the acceleration profile. Uh, but in this initial study, we were not able to, but if we'd been able to go out just a little bit um, uh, more in um, vertical height, uh, just one KPC in vertical height, I think we could have done it. And I, but I, I am ho quite hopeful that we will be able to do that in the near future. Yeah, that seems like uh, something that isn't very much of a technological reach, that you're basically saying, okay, um, you know, increasing by a factor of 10 might take a big jump in technology, but increasing by a factor of two is less so. Um, so now now you've got me thinking though about like look i know you you started out as a theorist you 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 know that's who does simulations simulations are almost always done by theorists um and that's you know the initial reason you started sort of looking at this problem at all and had this galaxy s thing galaxy x thing is because you were saying okay look we have uh the galaxies we see, there's something missing. There's got to be an extra mass there. It should have roughly these sets of parameters. And lo and behold, we found one. Um, and now you're starting to think like, well, when I'm looking at this problem, if I want to disentangle, like, what are the actual properties? What about scenario A, B, C, D? What are things actually doing? What do I need to decisively determine this? Um, well, I need better data. I need more and better data that tells me this. Is there this pressure on you as a theorist when you've got an interesting problem that can be solved through the collection of better data to get more involved on the observational side? Or are you just standing back doing your theory, being a cheerleader for the observers, 
Or are you like getting drawn towards, mm, maybe I should be a driving force between behind getting these observations to happen? Yeah, I, I think probably more the latter at the moment. And I've, I've kind of been, um, as you said, I started out as 100% uh, theorist, but over, over the years, I've been doing uh, much more observational work. And we are, uh, at the moment, we are trying to actively target um, pulsars at larger distances um, and trying to get additional observations so that, that we can improve on, on the current set, um, which should enable us to answer the kind of questions that you're asking. Um, we, at that point, with, with these uh, future observations that we're, we're now planning, we should be able to say more about the dark matter component of the Milky Way because we're, we're targeting pulsars at larger vertical heights and we're targeting pulsars that are at larger radial distances um, sp specifically to answer these questions. Uh, and so, uh, in addition to looking at the dark matter, we should be in, in, the, in the vertical direction, we should also be able to look at the radial, um, the slope of the rotation curve, which, which tells us how the dark matter is distributed um, in radius as well. Um, so yeah, I've certainly been, been evolving <laughs> uh, as, as time has gone on from, from being a theorist to, to becoming more and more of an observer. You know, I, I absolutely understand with that perspective. Um, I know when I was being trained as a theorist, um, the first time I worked on an observational project, uh, my advisor, uh, he approached me with a question and he was tentative and he's never tentative. So he was tentative. And while I was working on this, he says to me, um, but you still want to be a theorist, right? Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, don't worry. I still want to be a theorist. Do you... Do you feel any pressure from like one community or another that you should belong wholly to that community? Or do you feel like, you know, like, no, I, I don't experience any of that. And I I feel like everyone is supportive of do, do both of these to the extent that you want to, to the extent that they'll help you answer these big questions. And, and are you getting support with that? Or are you hearing voices being like, oh, you should, uh, you should be doing more theory work, or you should be doing more observation work? Because this is, this is sort of a cultural issue in the field that, you know, I've been away from for a little bit. And I'm curious, if things have changed, or if I only had the experience I had, because it's the one I went through. Yeah, gosh, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I think things are changing, but probably slowly, um, and probably at a similar time scale as uh, galactic accelerations. You know, they're they're changing on decade, <laughs> they're changing on decade level uh, time scales. Um, but by about ten centimeters a second. <laughs> yeah, by about by about that's exactly right. By about ten centimeter per second. So. I think certainly when I was in graduate school, um, there was more of a, a clear distinction between theorists and observers as, um, as we're getting more data from large surveys and analyzing data from large surveys. Um, the distinction is starting to become a little bit more fuzzy. Um, I myself haven't, uh, you know, as a student, I wasn't part of very large groups. Um, lately, I've been trying to build uh, um, collaborations that, um, you know, include 
people across these different sub-disciplines. Uh, as you can see, um, there's a very significant synergy here with people in the exoplanet community. And a, a lot of what I've learned in terms of making um, these measurements uh, with high-precision spectrographs, I, I've learned from my exoplanet colleagues. Um, so um, I, I guess I would say, you know, there, there, there has been some evolution, but it, it is on a, on a somewhat, somewhat um, long uh, time scale, um, probably brought about by uh, the uh, necessity to analyze data from, from large surveys that requires um, theorists to sometimes behave as, as observers and observers to sometimes behave as theorists. And so the distinction is becoming a little bit more fuzzy, but I, I, I probably started doing that um, uh, as, as even as a postdoc. Um, and it was at that time, um, it was at that time really because I, 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 uh, I couldn't get anybody else to do it. <laughs> and so that's why I, I had started to the observations myself. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of how I got into it initially. You know, I imagine that has to be just a feeling of incredible vindication where you're kind of the driving force behind, hey, this is important. We should be doing this. We should be measuring this. There's incredible science. We could be learning from this. Um, and you decide to like enter into a new subfield of astronomy to go to bat for this. It happens. The data comes in. You get it. And then you're like, we can. Bam. There it is. Like we can start placing meaningful constraints, learning meaningful relationships, drawing observationally based conclusions about these properties that we were so theoretically certain of that now we know are not true. The galaxy is not in equilibrium. There is an extra big massive galaxy just on the other side of the galaxy that's been pulling on us for millions of years. And, um, and we can use these pulsars in all these different directions to sort of measure the local potential of our galaxy and tell us what is this dark matter doing. I imagine down the road there's even going to be questions that we might someday be able to answer that people aren't really talking about answering right now with these pulsars. Like, for example, oh, if the gravitational potential is changing, can we actually see um, some feature of a turnover radius in the dark matter density where, you know, oh, the dark matter follows a particular profile in the inner part of the galaxy and then follows a different profile from there on out. Because where is that turnover radius supposed to be? Surprise, surprise, roughly where the sun is in the galaxy. So um, if you can go in a significant amount, out a significant amount, and up and down a significant amount, you're all of a sudden going to be able to map out a dark matter profile to a precision that we've never been able to do it before. And we're going to be able to do it right here in our own galaxy, which has traditionally been an incredibly difficult place to measure it. Yes, exactly. And I, I think that that's one of the things that, that, that is really exciting for me um, in this in this new and emerging field, which, which I, I sometimes like to call real time galactic dynamics, you know, because we're, we're actually measuring accelerations. And, um, and you know, I, I, but I also want to give a lot of credit to my um, collaborators, because when I first started thinking about this, it, it was, um, 
it was not uh, what people traditionally have done, as you said, is, is we've, we've estimated these accelerations um, because it's a difficult measurement to make. And I first started thinking about this in, in, in the context of, uh, of these uh, very precise radial velocity uh, observations, um, because I came to learn the, the landscape of um, the improvements in radial velocity precision. As you said, you know, there was a point when we were at kilometers per second, and then later we had precisions of meter per second, which enabled us to discover the first generation of exoplanets. And now we're talking about centimeter per second. So it's it's just orders of magnitude improvement in, in precision. And, and, and when I came to learn that, this was in fact uh, just before the pandemic set um, is when I happened to uh, learn about the improvements in because uh, I was doing a, a radial velocity survey um, on a totally different topic, not even related to galactic dynamics. And I, and I saw the improvements in, in RV precision. Um, and uh, in fact, as someone was giving a talk and said that, you know, we, we, we uh, can't measure these galactic accelerations, which is why we use these indirect methods. And that's when it finally clicked in my mind after having done this RV survey and learned about the improvements in RV precision. Um, and uh, Alice Quillen uh, was there, uh, one of my long-time long -time collaborators, and we went up to her office and did an order of magnitude estimate. Um, and we saw that we, we could, in fact, using the current generation of spectrographs that are available today, uh, with precisions at the order of 10 centimeter per second, we saw that we might have a chance. This was in um, end of 2019. And the last in-person conference I went to was in January of 2020. Uh, the WS in 2020, the last in-person conference I went to just before the pandemic set, this was in Hawaii, uh, and uh, Jason Wright, whom I knew from grad school, um, was there. Uh, and I, I uh, and you know, Jason is an expert in, in exoplanets, and he's done a lot of work in uh, high-precision radial velocity observations that allow you to measure these very, okay. very small shifts in, in, in spectral lines, which have been used to discover um, uh, exoplanets. And, and most of our listeners will know Jason Wright from uh, his work on uh, Tabby Star and the idea of alien megastructures surrounding it. Um, but Jason, Jason beyond that, is an excellent exoplanet scientist. Um, and so, uh, so uh, I, I know who he is, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, so, you know, at that point, I, I'd been I'd been thinking about this a little bit. Uh, and uh, I'd started to sort of take the idea more seriously. And I ran into Jason at the conference at the WS. And I said, Jason, here's a crazy idea. <laughs> and he said, Okay, let's, uh, let's, let's try it. So, so that's how the you know, I got started in, in this field of um, uh, working on direct acceleration um, techniques, first with the uh, uh, developing the methods for using extreme precision radial velocity observations to measure the acceleration over decade baselines where you would see um, a change in the velocity of about 10 centimeter per second and then with um, pulsar timing. Well, that that sort of leads me down a real speculative but fun line um, let's imagine, because we've had five orders of magnitude improvement in this over the last 50 years, let's imagine we get a big breakthrough again. Let's imagine that it's 20 years from now, and instead of centimeters per second, we're now talking 
tens or hundreds of microns per second. Imagine we can get that level of precision, like another three orders of magnitude or so better than what we can do today. Um, what questions that, you know, because you're talking about things that we'll get with, with another zero to one orders of magnitude. If we get uh, micron precision, microns per second precision down in pulsar timing, um, what would we be able to learn about the galaxy from that? Gosh, I have not thought about that um, at that level of precision. Um, so I'll have to think about this while we're talking. I might be able to answer the more intermediate question of, of, of going to cent right now where we are at is 10 centimeter per second uh, precision, which allows us to basically look for Earth size planets and measure the smooth component of the gravitational potential. If you can go to one centimeter per second, um, and particularly if it's, it's uh, so, you know, we're going back and forth between pulsar timing and extreme precision radial velocity observations. But uh, if you were thinking of that very high resolution spectrographs on very, very big telescopes um, with one centimeter per second um, resolution, spectral resolution, then at that point, um, you might be able to measure not just the accelerations of stars that live within the within the Milky Way and therefore experience an, an acceleration due to the fact that they live within the gravitational potential of the Milky Way, but you might be able to look and measure the uh, cosmic um, acceleration. So oh. at, at a centimeter per second. Um, and, the, and the additional distinction is that you need really large telescopes to do this. So with the um, planned um, extremely large telescopes, um, this, this might be uh, possible. That's pretty exciting. So would this have implications for, for example, in uh, exoplanet studies of being able to find um, the gravitational pull of uh, planets whose maybe baseline is too long to detect through like a radial velocity method or a transit method that, that you know, maybe if something's on a Jupiter or a Saturn or a Uranus-like orbit, would you be able to see its gravitational pull on the other planets and infer its existence even though you don't have enough of a long baseline time to see it? Yes, exactly. So with that level of um, improvement in, in pulsar timing or with uh, radial velocity precisions, um, you should be able to see uh, these, um, uh, you know, effects of some of these distant giant planets that um, Vatican and Brown and others uh, have, have predicted. Um, at the moment, it, we're not quite there. Right. I'd also be curious if you got a microlensing event that was close enough, where the lenser was close enough to the thing that it passed in front of, uh, would you be able to detect sort of a gravitational influence of that? Or if you had a dark matter substructure clump that transited across a line of sight, if you'd be able to tell because uh, with that you get a wavelength independent signal instead of a wavelength dependent signal as opposed to if you had like gas or some baryonic matter in there. Um, could this lead to the direct detection of substructure clumps where you can actually start to track it from its gravitational effects and say like, oh yeah, here goes, here goes old clumpy moving from east to west across the sky. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, ultimately what it will take is, um, I think we will have to use a number of different techniques as, as you're alluding to, uh, to try and get a more complete picture of, of substructure across the galaxy. Um, microlensing, pulsar timing, high precision radial velocity observations. I think um, at some point we're going to transition to what cosmologists do um, and uh, when they're making these plots, right, for the cosmological parameters using various different uh, techniques and looking at uh, the intersections of these. So, um, and I think that that is, that is where we are headed. Um, I mean, that's that's where science to me gets very strong, where you say, OK, I have, uh, you know, multiple four, five, six different lines of evidence, different independent sets of observations. Uh, and this points to uh, some conclusion where it's a, a and B and C or A or B or C. And then you get another one where it's like A or C or D. And it's another one where it's like A or E or F. And it's another one. And then you see like, you know, they have different things where they overlap, different possibilities in parameter space or however you want to look at it. And then you see, wow, and there's this one set of solutions we can put in there that fits everything. And that's why we say, oh, we have dark matter and dark energy and lambda CDM and bam, and there's cosmology. And you might be able to say in a decade, oh yeah, here's the amount of dark matter substructure, here's the clump profile, here's how dependent on some other galactic parameters uh, the substructure may have been destroyed or pushed out of the center. Um, like. I, I think we might be able to finally start saying informative things about what's going on in the interiors of galaxy as far as gravity and dark matter are concerned. Yes, I think so. And it is, uh, it's certainly true that this is a, a, a long-term type of experiment, but it, it should give us very quantitative, um, a very quantitative means of characterizing uh, dark matter in the Milky Way. and. In a certain sense, it's similar to the work that's been done in the galactic center in, in looking at orbits um, around the black hole, uh, the center of our galaxy. And um, that, in that particular case, um, the gravitational field is, of course, much stronger. Here, we're looking at a much weaker gravitational field. Um, but we are trying to do something similar. We're actually trying to measure, uh, we're trying to think about the acceleration as a three-dimensional thing. And trying to measure it and given that we're uh, getting because the accelerations give you the most direct window on the mass where we will be able to get a handle on the mass distribution both stars and dark matter not just you know snapshots of of the the posi positions and velocities which is what we've relied on for a long time and it was necessary because we just we weren't there in terms of the technology but because of the improvements in technology and the ongoing observational campaigns that have been conducted by, by, by so many groups um, uh, across the world, um, we are now in a position where we can actually see changes um, in the galaxy, which is, which to me is, is really extraordinary that we can see the galaxy change in a human lifetime. Yeah, I mean, and this is, this is the trade-off, right? 
it's the trade-off because if you want to observe a small effect, you can either wait longer times for it to show up, or you can go ahead and make better measurements so you can see those changes on smaller time scales. And we have, we're finally getting there where looking at the galaxy is not like, okay, if I look at the very first picture that anyone ever took of a galaxy, it was Isaac Roberts in 1887 took a picture of M31. And I go and I look at M31, I look at the Andromeda galaxy today, and it looks exactly the same. Because at the resolution he had and the resolution we have today, there's no detectable difference in Andromeda. But if I could have looked with so much better resolution, um, then I could have over a over a hundred year baseline, I could have seen the tiny amount of rotation that's happened in Andromeda and how the stars have moved and how um, you know the different dwarf galaxies have tugged on various parts of it and where the star forming regions are and how that's changed and on and on and on about all the things I could have seen. What you're basically saying is we have begun to enter the era instead of still pictures of movies that we have these moving pictures of what's occurring in the galaxy and as our observational tools continue to improve and our telescopes get larger and our instrumentation becomes more powerful we're going to be able to start seeing HD and full HD and ultra HD movies and we're going to be able to start going from you know 10 frames per second to 60 frames per second to whatever it is that gamers want these days. So, you know, you are starting to talk about like the evolution of many different fields of astronomy where we're going from these low resolution images to these high resolution movies commensurate with all the extra science we can get out of them. Yes, exactly. And that, that is very much uh, the revolution that we're, we're moving from still pictures of the galaxy. That's where we were um, a couple of decades ago. But today where we are, we're, we're starting to get, um, we're starting to be able to make movies um, of the, uh, the lives of galaxies. And, and uh, that's, um, that's a huge technological um, uh, progress. Sukanya, I want to thank you for giving us such a wonderful window into this developing, emerging, and also um, just incredibly successful line of inquiry into our universe that we, we're getting to see what's becoming possible and we're getting to reap the fruits of the science from it uh, as we, you know, just see the improvement in technology and our capabilities of what we can investigate and how that translates into learning more, not just about the distant universe, but the universe right here in our own backyard. Um, I'd like to ask you before we depart, if you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners about anything we've talked about or something brand new? Um, gosh, well, uh, you know, not really, but I'm, I'm very excited to, to you know, see uh, the results of, of, uh, that we'll, we're going to get from observations uh, that are ongoing by pulsar timing arrays. As you said, I think that's going to allow us to uh, get a clearer picture of the dark matter distribution in our galaxy at larger vertical heights. Um, and 
And as well as, you know, we, we ourselves are planning our own high precision radial velocity observations as well. Um, so it's, uh, it's really an exciting time um, to be in this field that, that has entirely been brought about uh, due to uh, the work that a lot of people have done um, in the exoplanet community, in the pulsar timing community, and people who've, who've, who've worked to, to create uh, these technologies. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really exciting to be, to be working in this area. That's wonderful. I, I really love stories of hearing how like advances in technology benefit the whole community beyond whatever community has made that advance. Um, and it's also a wonderful exploration of how theory, observation, and instrumentation advances all go together to push the enterprise of science forward. Um, so Sukanya, I want to thank you for joining us and for taking us on this journey together. And I'd like to thank every one of you for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone who donates at the $5 a month level or above. Thanks go to... Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Thomas Moore, Matt Conroe, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Jakutas, Chris Shaw, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Pavel Zuzelski, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franzen, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Bernegger, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jens Kruger, Jerry Welterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojciechuk, Randall Slimak, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zapeta, Benhead, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Carl Iddings, Chris Hilly, Christoph Hip, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hal Bender, Hannah Khan, Ilan Benzvi, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Mike, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Serzakian, Steve Shaber, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Blair, William Vanden Heuvel, and Yanko S. Thanks to everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Bye.